0: Welcome to the Orthodontics in Conference podcast, where Farouk brings you the summary of key lectures from orthodontic conferences around the world with your host, Farouk Ahmed. Hello, all, and welcome to this part three of the Orthodontics in Conference podcast. We're covering the final day from the American Association of Orthodontics virtual annual session from June of this year. Now, on day three, there's definitely some big names to come that we're going to cover for this podcast. We've got Jay Bowman's lecture on TADS. We've got Kevin O'Brien talking about evidence-based practice. Louis Carey is there talking about his appliance and much more to come. As a reminder, the Orthodontics in Summary podcast is an opinion piece and may not be 100% accurate, although we try our best to ensure that it is. The podcast is not endorsed by an institute or by the speaker and is the independent work of myself and the orthodontics in summary team. It is not intended to replace or override the requirements for clinicians to have to be familiar with the relevant training and guidelines that they provide in their clinical practice. That's the terms and conditions over with. I look forward to seeing you guys at the end as I give you my thoughts and feelings from this year's third day of the AAO's conference. This lecture is entitled TADS, Keeping It Simple Whilst Being Successful by Sebastian Borbangtel. So Sebastian started off by describing Pareto's principles. So for those unfamiliar, like myself, Pareto's principles are based on an unequal relationship between the input and the output of what we do. And it's a generic idea that 80% of our results come from 20% of our efforts. Likewise, the 20% of our results require 80% of our efforts. And that's what Sebastian's talk is based around, this 20% of outputs which are difficult to achieve, which require more of our focus. Sebastian described insertion torque for TADS. Now the ideal is between 5 to 10 Newton centimeters. The ideal bone thickness for TADS is between 0.5 and 1.5 millimeters. So he said this is the ideal scenario for ourselves. If you want to be really successful with TADS, let's avoid areas of thin bone. Let's avoid pre-drilling and areas of thick bone. But what if we do wish to go to these other areas? Well, then we need to think about using tissue punches for mobile mucosa, cortical bone perforation when the bone is greater than 1.5 millimeters in thickness, and even a pilot hole when bone is greater than 2.5 millimeters. Now, Sebastian said that these ideas can sometimes be challenging. And he has spent some time thinking if there's a workaround for this for the average user who doesn't necessarily want to engage in implant site preparation so he started off by describing the target sites let's go for the right areas where no preparation is required well where should we aim for well we want to be inter where there's good root clearance that's there in the buccal area, what we want to aim for is one to two millimetres above the mucogingival junction. And this is different to what I've heard previously, where people describe the mucogingival junction being ideal. But actually, Sebastian says root divergence is greater here. And actually, when we're aiming buccally, interradicular distance can be a real challenge. When it comes to palatal tats, he describes the parasagittal area, approximating the 4-5 th- region. And this is from Sebastian's own study in 2009. And also similar ideas have been propagated by Benedict Wilms in his paper in 2016. Now, how do we avoid hitting roots? Well, we can do some preparation with our orthodontic appliances by tipping teeth out of the way. He's reminded us the minimum distance we're really looking at is around 2.6 millimeters into ridicular. Now, what are the hierarchy of the sites that we're looking at? The highest is going to be one where there are no roots. That is the buccal shelf area. That is the anterior palate. The next is going to be the natural sites where roots are divergent, which are going to be the palatal alveolus. And the third and the lowest point of the hierarchy of target sites are where roots are close together. And they require orthodontic divergence of the roots, i.e. the labial or buccal face. Sebastian then went to show a number of cases where he's used a TADS and TPA to manage an anterior open bite case. He gave a top tip of leaving the TPA 5mm clear of the palatal surface. Sebastian explained some of the biomechanics around anterior open bite cases and TAD management with a TPA. He described how the center of resistance is above the line of action when it comes to the maxilla. Therefore, we get a rotation of the maxillary plane. The posterior teeth intrude, the anterior segment rotates clockwise, and we get closure taking place by both of those factors. Sebastian described anterior open bite failure. He said how palatal tads between the 6 and 7 can be challenging, and he described one of his own failures, where the mucosa had grown over the area. So a top tip is to ensure that there's enough tag present through the mucosa, especially if it's thick. He described intrusion of one individual tooth, the classic example of her upper six which is over-erupted. Sebastian showed a really neat trick which was published in the AJODO where he used two TADS and essentially fixated the position of the seven and of the five, small segmental mechanics between the five, six, seven which intruded the six with no reciprocal effects. Sebastian has got resources available at www.tadchallenge.com where you can find more of Sebastian's publications and his courses. He also recommended the textbook by J. Juan Park on temporary anchorage devices. And I must say, I have looked over this book and it's an immense body of work when it comes to orthodontic application of TADs. And I do recommend listeners having a look at it. This lecture is entitled Uno Dos Tres, All the Screws in the Same Place by Jay Bowman. Jay gave a very typically Jay Bowman lecture, which was entertaining and thought-provoking. Jay started off by describing his preferred location for TAD placement. He prefers the palatal region between the upper second premolar and the upper first molar. He described the advantages. It's got the largest interradicular site. The upper five root is usually labeled in its position. And also, we can directly insert it. No need for any contra-angle handpiece. He described the low failure rate and also the safe zone, or the T-zone, which has been described by Ludwig and Bowman in 2011, which describes the ideal site for placing TADS, being this area. Now Jay went on to describe a number of scenarios where placing TADs in this region allow a multitude of malocclusions to be managed. Starting off with distalization, a modified distal jet is what Jay described, putting the TADs between the upper 5 and 6, and using a horseshoe-shaped metal wire ligated to the TAD. The appliance is activated through using open coil on this horseshoe-shaped wire. So it essentially goes from the anterior region to through to the first molar. This applies a distal vector to the first permanent molar. And as it distalizes, the premolars distalize as well due to the transeptal fibers. And the great thing about using these palatal mechanics is that once distalization is complete, the appliance can be locked, therefore being used now as indirect anchorage as opposed to active distalization. What about protraction of posterior teeth? Now, Jay showed here what he described as a TPA+. The TADs go in again between the upper 5 and 6 region. The TPA bar is positioned behind the TADs. Now, this time, power chain goes from the TADs to the TPA. And this is going to protract the posterior teeth anteriorly using the TADs. He described the use of a TPA-plus in a class 3 AOB case. Now, the adaptability of the TPA means that actually we can have a mesial-distal vector, but also we can have an intrusive vector taking place. And Jay described using an L-shaped chain to achieve both a vertical and an anterior-posterior vector. He also showed the same thing being applied in inverse in the TPA-minus. So an anterior open bite case again, TADs go into Jay's favorite area, the upper 5, 6 region. And this time, the TPA, the TADs are posterior to the TPA. This time, the posterior teeth are going to be distalized in the process. And the vertical component can be added if it's an anterior open bite case using the L chain, as we've mentioned previously. More information can be found if you look at the seminars in orthodontics in 2018 by Mokowitz, And Jay again gave a great lecture, as he always does, showing the diversity of what's possible with temporary increased devices. <laughs> this lecture is entitled Class Two Minimum Touch Approach in an Evolving Orthodontic World. This was by Louis Carrier. Now, I'll be honest, I was really looking forward to listening to Louis talk on the carrier motion appliance. Now, Louis started off by describing the objectives of the class two case in the mixed dentition. It's to advance the mandible, is to decrease the projection of the maxilla and also to improve the structures of the TMJ. What is the carrier appliance? Well, Louis described it. It is a rigid appliance on the canine to the first permanent molar. There are rubber bands used in the form of class two elastics going to a hook on the lower first permanent molar. The lower arch usually has a vacuum form retainer to ensure there's no changes in the lower arch. Now there is a hinge built into the appliance on the upper first permanent molar, which facilitates the distal rotation of the first permanent molar. So what are the advantages of using the carrier appliance? Well, who describes it? It's a segmentation of the arch. He mentions the real advantage is the independence between the right-hand side and the left-hand side using this appliance. means we can overcorrect, we can have asymmetric changes taking place. He described the appliance as being comfortable when compared to the forces appliance. He also mentioned the appliance is self-limiting for the rotation on the first permanent molar and that hinge which is present on that tooth will only rotate the tooth to a certain degree. And he mentioned the class 2 case typically have measly rotated upper first permanent molars and he cited the classic paper by Henry in 1956. Now, there are challenges in the mixed dentition and he mentioned stability is a challenge with the lack of cuspal inclines, this poor interdigitation. And his solution to this was to overcorrect using the carrier appliance. So what changes take place when a patient has the care reappliance? Or this is what Louis stated, the upper lip length reduces as the protrusive nature of the upper incisors are retracted. He mentions how the width improves, and that's by Kim Berman in 2019. There's a change to the occlusal plane. Now there's a clockwise rotation which takes place. Which Louis stated sounds counterintuitive. However, Louis describes how this process works in the beneficial sense for class two cases. So, the class two case, the condyles are posteriorly seated, and he cited Gopp-Kalp from 2016. The carrier motion appliance, according to Louis, allows distraction of the condyle to take place. The condyle is essentially moved forwards. The articular disc also repositions, allowing further growth to take place without a bony barrier. Louis mentioned how the maxillary volume, or the maxillary arch length, is maintained as the posterior teeth are repositioned, and there's no arch-length reduction. Louis also stated that the airways do improve, however, the evidence is still outstanding to be produced. Now, what happens in adult patients? Well, Louis showed a case of a severe class 2 case with TMD. He mentioned orthognathic surgery was an option. However, there would be no correction for the patient's TMD if that took place, as the condyle is distally positioned and impinging on the retrodiscal ligaments. So if the condyle moves forwards, it allows elastic recovery in the TMJ, which aids the distraction and repositioning of the mandible anteriorly. Louis mentioned in this one case that he showed that the TMD symptoms resolved, as the posterior disc was no longer being impinged, and the repositioning of the mandible anteriorly. He mentioned there was no growth to the mandible, just a repositioning. Louis did state the evidence for this is limited, but he looks forward to it coming out. In my opinion, in some of the cases that Louis showed, they were really exciting to watch the changes that took place. There were a few where the low incisors had proclined. I would still wait to see some more evidence that comes out which looks at the conventional parameters of changes expected from orthodontic appliances before using this in my clinical practice. This lecture is entitled "The Management of the Occlusal Plane with Extra Alveolar Mini Screws," and this is by Marcio Almeida. Marcio started off by describing the introduction of extra alveolar tabs by Chris Chang in 2008. Since the introduction, Marcio has been using TADS and has now produced a textbook on this topic in 2018. Marcio describes total arch distalization, how these biomechanics are possible to do with temporary anchorage devices. This is from his paper in 2019. He mentioned there's two factors to controlling these biomechanics for distalizing off the entire arch. Now, the first is the height of the hook or the attachment to the arch wire from the TAD. The second is the height of the TAD itself. And described how these two factors can change how the occlusal plane rotates. So next, Marcio looked at some of the literature. Now, there was a paper from Karamura in 2021. And in this study, they simply changed the angle of force to see what would take place to the maxillary occlusal plane. Interestingly, they found in all cases there was a occlusal plane clockwise rotation taking place of the maxilla. They found posterior teeth intruded, anterior teeth extruded, and there was loss of anterior torque. And In this paper, it shows that up to 11 degrees could be lost of anterior torque. Now, when it comes down to the biomechanics of extra mini screws, they can distalize the entire arch. What about in the mandible? While well, total arch distalization can also take place through the use of buccal shelf TADs. What differences take place to the occlusal plane? Well, in Roberts' paper from 2015, it was shown that a counterclockwise rotation takes place when using these distalization mechanics. But this can be altered depending on the line of action in the mandible. For example, if we are below the center of rotation of the mandible, we create a clockwise rotation and this can be achieved through using a very long posted post anteriorly. Or if we are above the center of rotation, we create that counterclockwise rotation. So it is something that can be altered. Next, Marcio went on to give some examples of biomechanics with class 3 anterior open bike cases. He used an example of an infrazygrammatic TAT being placed at the level of the arch Below the center of rotation, and he mentioned how the clockwise rotation takes place of the maxilla, which aids the anterior open bite closure. In the same case, we can use a buckle shelf TAD. Now, the option that we have is to achieve a counterclockwise rotation. This time, we'll have a coil or power chain running from the TAD to the arch wire in the two to three region. He went on to cite examples of using temporary anchorage devices versus elastics in class three cases. Now, what's interesting in a study by Nakamura in 2017, it showed that there was no significant AP difference between these two groups. But where there was a difference was in controlling the vertical eruption of the posterior teeth and how in a, in a, using intermaxillary arch elastics, we do get vertical changes. And in this particular study with TADS, There was good control of the vertical dimension. And Marcio reminded us to apply our understanding of biomechanics when it comes to applying it to our individual cases. It was a great lecture by a person very au fait with biomechanics and TADS. And he also encouraged that textbook, which is I'm sure going to become a household name, by Jay Park on temporary anchorage devices. This lecture is entitled TAD-Supported Space Closure in A Genesis Cases by Bjorn Ludwig. Bjorn Ludwig actually started off by describing the challenges with space opening and specifically looking at implant replacement of these spaces. He described how the continuous growth process occurs, which results in relative infra-occlusion of the implant. There are solutions out there, such as replacing the crown, but the pink aesthetics, the gingiva, is always has a vertical defect. He described the continuous growth process continuing our after adolescence into our 30s and 40s. And from Bjork's classic study, we know up incisors generally tend to extrude and retrocline throughout the later years of life. When it comes to orthodontic space opening to facilitate implant placement, well, there is a the loss of bone in these biomechanics. There's a lingual defect which is created in the bone. This was Aurobis paper from 2013. And the consequences of this to our restoration? Well, it results in this blue discoloration. This shine through of the metal underneath the gingiva. And that occurs in 57% of unilateral implant placement in the lateral incisor region. This was Duheld's study from 2009. He described space opening for bridges and described as bridges in the conventional bonded sense, but also TAD supported cantilever bridges, which he described as being easy to change the crowns off in comparison to conventional bonded bridges. He went on to describe how a patient centered approach to decision making and how, from a study looking at space opening and space closure by Schneider in 2019, said, dental professionals shouldn't impose their view of aesthetics on patients with agenesis and how there is a psychology associated with patients who have spaces. And that was by Iliad in 2014. So what about space closure and when it comes to missing lateral incisors? Well, there's implant site development, which is possible. And that is through moving a tooth into the site of agenesis, develops a bone in that region. We can achieve guided eruption. We can try and avoid the idea of having to active mechanics. If we can time the extraction of primary teeth, we can enable the canine to erupt into the lateral incisor position. And of course, we can always lean on temporary anchorage devices. Now, what Bjorn recommended was the use of pull mechanics from the palatal side, but also adding in. Push mechanics from the labial side, and he described this as a way to counter the biomechanical side effects from choosing one side versus the other. We overcome the friction and binding in that system. Now, what does Bjork say? Well, he prefers the palatal rugae, but he mentioned we still have to be aware of the iatrogenic risks. There is a small chance that we may damage the roots of teeth going into this region. He described how non-parallel TAD placement can result in real challenges to applying our biomechanics. And we can resolve this through using TAD insertion guides. Bjork prefers to use a slider TAD supported mechanics. Now he described this process, otherwise known as a Benny slider, similar to that of a final arch wire. It allows us to have transverse and vertical effects, both in the positive and negative if we aren't tuned into them. He described it as being a round wire, so therefore we do not get torque control. And he described the solution which is coming, which is a customized approach to all orthodontic appliances. Now, the aesthetics following space closure, how do we manage this situation? Well, he described the classic paper by Marco Rosa, who describes canine substitution, the idea of extruding the canine when it's in the lateral incisor position and intruding the premolar to create the ideal pink aesthetics or the ideal gingival contour. Now, Bjork really likes the use of talking auxiliaries because canines are a real challenge to achieve the palatal root torque. Talk. Using talking auxiliaries such as Warren or Goodman springs helps him to get that extra torque. And he described the use of aligners to finish cases, utilizing the best of each type of appliance to maximize the outcome for our patients. And finally, when it came to functional changes in space closure in a genesis of lateral incisor cases, the Rosa's paper from 2016 shows there was no difference with respect to TMD symptoms. This lecture is entitled Maxillary Molar Distillization with Mini Screw Implant-Supported Appliances. This is by Marcos Papadopoulos. Marcos just started off by describing the evidence-based practice, how we've got two key parameters. One is the laws of nature, which imply our biomechanics. And the second is the evidence in our literature. So starting off with the biomechanics. He described how to avoid distal tipping forces. We should apply the force through the center of resistance. When it comes to applying distal forces, they should be applied palatally from our TADs, not buccally, as it can be challenging to the mucosa and cause trauma. And also the ideal line of action is challenging buccally. What about the evidence from the literature? Well, Marcos went on to describe a systematic review but also, the challenges with systematic reviews is that they generally group all types of temporary anchorage devices into one group, whether it's for distalization or different types of mechanics. So he said that the systematic reviews actually don't help us answer this question. They're too diverse, too heterogeneous. Whereas Marcos's own systematic review looked at just distalization taking place. He looked at cephalometric analysis of these studies. And he found the following, which is quite an interesting revelation when it came to the effects of distalizing with TADS. The first is that both with TADS and conventional appliances, there is proclination that takes place of the open sizes. Now, that is very much reduced when it comes to using TADS, but it still takes place. Now, when it came to looking at the first permanent molars, he described that tipping does take place, whether TADs are used or not. And here Marco stated his opinion that actually it's our biomechanics and our understanding of it which is more important than the skeletal or conventional anchorage we use. When it came to conventional appliances in changing the vertical components, they had a greater effect on the FMPA than the use of temporary anchorage devices. And that matches our understanding of conventional mechanics is that they do generally have an extrusive factor when it comes to the molars. Finally, when it came to buccal versus palatal tads, there was more distal tipping with buccal tads versus palatal tads. Next, Marcos went on to speak about the Amda Tad supported appliance, which is one which he is commercially involved with. He described it as an appliance which allows palatal mechanics to take place and achieves ideal bodily movement without anterior anchorage loss. Marcos was asked a question about third molar removal. I think it's always an interesting one when it comes to distalization. He gave a very well-rounded answer to the question. For adult patients, yes, he removes it. For younger patients, he leaves it in situ. And Marcos's answer to this was that he sees what the effects are and if the third permanent molar is impacted further, then he removes it. But actually sometimes it makes no difference to the impaction and it can be left in situ. These are still younger patients and removing a third permit molar can be a challenging procedure. This lecture is entitled Navigating Complexities in Surgical Orthodontic Cases by Jerry English and Kurt Casper. Now this was a two-part lecture. The first half looking at 3D planning and its application to orthognathic treatment, and the second half really focused on 3D printing and what its effects are for orthognathic surgery. So the first half looking at computer-aided surgical simulation, or CASS, the idea that we can have planning take place, we can have visualization, surgical planning, The execution by creating occlusal splints, templates and drilling guides. And finally, we can assess our outcomes using the same process. The aim of the game here when it comes to orthognathic surgery is to create a 3D model of the head and neck, which accurately represents the patient looking at their soft tissues, skeletal and dental tissues. Now, when it comes to the execution of 3D planning, we've got both the orthodontic and surgical outcomes. So orthodontically, we're looking at occlusal adjustments prior to surgery. We can see where the premature contacts could potentially be, and we can acknowledge and correct them. From a surgical perspective, we can look at what collisions may take place with respect to the bones themselves after the cuts are made. For example, the nasal turbotinates. And then the second half of the lecture, looking at 3D printing in orthognathic surgery. This was a paper by Jacobs, 2017, and also Lynn from the same year. Now it looks at the four applications of 3D printing for orthognathic surgery. The first is contouring models, so we can see the skeletal structures that can help us plan and contour our bone plates. Surgical guides for the osteotomy cuts. We can create occlusal splints. And also we can produce implants as well from the 3D printing process. Now, this is where some more detail was given about 3D printing and described it as a layer by layer process. That is how the 3D printers work. However, there are dimensional deviations. They are quite small up to 0.01 millimeter. Now, what about the accuracy in the models that are produced and the variations and options that we have as clinicians? Well, actually, the ones that are produced by DLP machines tend to have a lower threshold of less than 0.25 millimeters. When it comes to printing, it was interesting to hear that actually the height of the printing layer, the greater it is, the less dimensional deviation there was. An example of this from the study was 100 microns of printing layers produced less dimensional deviation than 25 microns. Now, anyone who's seen digital study models printed would know that the smaller the layer, the smoother the printed model. However, what was stated is that actually the smoothness of the model doesn't translate to accuracy of the model, which was news to me. When it came to the printer itself, we can choose the orientation of the model. Is it going to be flat or is it going to be perpendicular placed? Now, for me, this sounded like it doesn't make much of a difference, but actually it does. If we produce the models vertically, we can get more models printed from that particular printing session. However, there is an effect to the number of layers which are consequently needed. And what was stated is that there's a greater dimensional deviation with perpendicular positioned models when compared to flat models. And this was attributed to the amount of layering which is then required. And what was stated is that the orientation and the layer height have a relationship. And depending on what we are planning to deliver clinically, we should orientate accordingly. This lecture is entitled Tooth Bone and Tissue Bone MSE, Does It Matter? by Boom Kim. And MSE stands for Maxillary Skeletal Expansion. So Boom started off by describing the reasons for bone-borne expanders. And it is to open the mid-palatal suture in the older population. The success rates overall are quite high at 74 to 90%. And studies have shown a variety of opening of the palatal suture. Now, when it comes to using conventional RME in adult patients, there are risks. We could get periodontal problems, severe tipping and root resorption. And this is where bone-borne appliances have an advantage. Now, Boom describes two main different types of bone-borne skeletal expansion. A hybrid appliance, one which has palatal TADS, also some dental bearing component, and ones which are just bone-borne, which have no contact with the teeth and have palatal tads. So which is better? Now, Boom did an extensive discussion about the difference of literature when it came to looking at RME, hybrid appliances, and also looking at bone-borne appliances. But overall, what seemed to be found is that when it came to dental changes, there was no difference between RME, a hybrid appliance, and a bone-borne appliance. When it came to looking at skeletal changes, there was a difference. There was less skeletal change when it came to RME, the ratio of around 31%, and that was Jay's study from 2021. With a hybrid appliance and also the bone-borne appliance, the ratio was close to 50-50, skeletal to dental expansion. When it came to tipping off the molars, the greatest tipping was in the RME appliance, followed by the hybrid appliance, and the least was in the bone-borne appliances. And there was a systematic review in 2019 by Krusey, which concluded essentially the same thing. No differences in dental expansion, bone-borne appliances have greater skeletal expansion, and hybrid appliances have less tipping than RME. What Boom asked, and I thought it was a very intelligent question, is that why are we expanding? Is our purpose to 1. correct the crossbite, or 2. to create expansion of the mid-face? And what are endpoints? Are our endpoints just molar or dental correction? Or are we trying to achieve skeletal expansion? And he gave the example that if I know I'm going to achieve a skeletal expansion, I'm going to go for a two to one ratio for my expansion dentally to achieve it skeletally. And Boo mentioned the literature mainly produced so far is based on younger patients. But actually it's the adult patients where the advantage truly lies. And he asked the question. He answered the question himself about does it matter for younger patients if it's bone-borne appliances or not, and he gave a frank statement that he doesn't think it does matter, and the difference between bone-borne and tooth-borne, it really relates to adult patient management. So, what kind of facial changes do take place using bone-borne expansion appliances? Well, there was a study by Kang von Kitt, where facial changes were assessed in an adult population. Now, skeletal expansion was carried out of around 4.6 millimeters. And what they found was that there were profound soft tissue changes. The alar base width changed by 2 millimeters. Now, Boom said that may well be advantageous for some patients, but also detrimental to others. So case selection is imperative. Next, Boom went on to describe the challenges with skeletal expansion. Now, for me, this was the best bit of the lecture, where there's an expert in the field, but they also describe the downsides of what they are proposing. So Boom went on to state that if there are different heights in the temporary anchorage devices in the palate, it can result in asymmetric expansion. In a study by Kim in 2019, it showed that 30% of skeletal bone-borne expansion was carried out asymmetrically. And this issue can come together to produce a two millimeter vertical discrepancy. And this can obviously create a cant. So the idea is that expansion is never just a true transverse idea. It's a rotational element and it can vary. Now, Boom had ideas about how this could be reduced. And essentially, it's about choosing the ideal appliance, whether it's bone-borne or hybrid, to limit those issues taking place. And Boom then concluded that he doesn't think that bone born versus hybrid versus RME is much of a question for younger patients. But again, coming back to adults, this is where we need careful consideration, and this may be the appliance of choice depending on the circumstances. This lecture is entitled A Less Evasive Surgery First Approach by Jungi Sugawara. So Jungi started off by describing the difference between his approach to surgery first and the conventional surgery first approach. So how does he clinically do it? Well, the protocol is this. Just before the surgery, Kaplan hooks are placed on the labial side of the teeth. The surgical cuts and osteotomy are carried out. Following this, bone-borne plates are placed in the upper molar region and the lower canine region. Now, they're key to the orthodontic post-surgical management. A surgical splint is placed and the occlusion, as the occlusion can be unstable. Guiding elastics are used initially with the surgical splint in place. Then pre-adjusted edgewise appliances are then placed, followed by posterior bite box with composite. Then the orthodontic mechanics take over to decompensate the upper arch, and that's mainly through using the upper bone plate to decompensate the upper incisors. Now, this was first published by Nagasaka in 2009. Now, Sugawara, since the inception of this idea, which he was involved with, there's been a, two diverse aspects to surgery first that which is surgically driven and that which is orthodontically driven. So just to qualify what that is. Surgically driven is where surgery itself resolves both the skeletal and dental problems. Whereas orthodontically driven planning is where the surgery resolves the skeletal problem and the orthodontics resolves the dental problem. And this was Jungi's approach to having surgery first. It's an orthodontic driven process. Now, Jungi went on to describe how the orthodontic driven process, or the Sendai approach as he described it, manifests the decompensation in the occlusion after the surgery. Now, he mentioned the downside to this approach is the occlusion can be unstable immediately after the surgery, especially in anterior open bite cases. But the solution to this is to have orthodontic treatment with posterior intrusion and distalization of the molars in order to correct the malocclusion at that stage. Now, the Sandai surgery first approach. We know that generally when it comes to orthognathic treatment from a systematic review by Perio from 2016 is that 85% of orthognathic surgery is bimaxillary in its nature. However, the Sandai approach, 73% of surgery cases are single jaw. So it's less evasive as he described it. The surgery first approach is limited to patients with minimal arch length discrepancy. Now, Jungai described this as not being correct. This is what has been proposed. However, this is due to the limitations of people when it comes to clinical practice with the surgery first approach. And a subsequent paper which looked at the Surgery First approach by Kwan in 2019 showed that actually the outcomes are dependent on both the surgeon and the orthodontist's experience. And actually to date, there are no contraindications to the use of Surgery First. So what are the average times taken with this approach? Well, in the review in 2016, it showed the average treatment time was 14 months. And what Junge emphasized was the less evasive nature of the treatment, due to most of its time being single jaw surgery. Now, what I liked about Junge's lecture is that there is a significant amount of orthodontic treatment which is carried out, but on the other side of the orthognathic surgery. Now, it's an interesting approach which has been around for some time now, and it's interesting to see how the person who's had the inception has now developed the idea to involve mini plates and the use of orthodontic biomechanics. However, just in regards to it being less evasive, I think without seeing the level of discrepancy with some of these cases, it's hard to say that actually the surgical technique is less evasive. It may just be the patient's selection. But impressive results nonetheless when it comes to orthognathic cases and the timeframes in which they're completed. This lecture is entitled Orthodontic Uncertainty, Research, Core Outcomes, and Snake Oil. This was a lecture delivered by Kevin O'Brien and was a salesman lecture from the AAO 2021. So Kevin started off by describing uncertainty in orthodontics and how it's present in all clinicians. He described how claims can increase our uncertainty and research is designed to reduce our uncertainty. Now, where does the pyramid of hierarchy of evidence fit in? Well, we have case reports and case controls. And Kevin described this as being something which informs us but shouldn't change our clinical practice. And really, it's the randomized controlled trials where this should be then change in our clinical practice. He then gave a rundown of the evidence-based research that we have in orthodontics and some of the key categories that have been described well. For example, extractions of teeth sometimes are required, how bracket and wires don't make any significant difference, We can't quicken or hasten orthodontic treatment, and temporary anchorage devices are useful at providing greater anchorage. Now, when it comes to looking at oral health definition, Kevin described it as something which is comfortable and functional dentition, which allows individuals to continue their desired social role. And here's where Kevin described how our research so far as a body generally tends not to address this definition of oral health. When this has been researched by Kevin and the group, they found that actually the majority of our randomized control trials focus on morphological outcomes, essentially orthodontic outcomes, what we're interested in as clinicians. 25% of them address cost, others address adverse effects, but only 10%, one in 10, address quality of life measures, things which are pertinent to patients. So what did Kevin and the team do? Well, they went about establishing a set of core outcomes in orthodontics, a way to standardize things we look at in research, which are going to put both the patient but also clinicians' outcomes down on paper so we really get the information that we need from these trials. What they found was that patients are really interested when it comes to looking at adverse effects of orthodontics, stability, but also the impact and self-perceived aesthetics. So why, why is it that research is then rejected? Well, Kevin described this as the nature of research itself is that it tends to have an uncertainty to it. When it comes to those who refute evidence, state that their patients are different, to state that they are better as clinicians. Now, he's introduced the concept of quackery. So quackery is the promotion of unsubstantiated methods with a lack of scientific evidence. And he drew a protocol as to how this happens. A new disease is developed, a new diagnosis, a new name, a new course, and of course to criticise others. Kevin then switched tracks and started to talk about key opinion leaders. And he said that terminology should be changed. These guys are usually paid and paid well. So they really are people who are sales agents for these companies and they exercise influence over peers. And the key is that they have a substantial social media presence. So they can link this to Facebook-based orthodontic, where a case can be presented. However, the comments that follow may be from key opinion leaders or people related to that company, which gives us a warped understanding as to what the actual clinical application is or how ideal that outcome has been. Now, that can become a a subtle form of advertising rather than a clinical discussion. Kevin said, are we starting to get lost in our orthodontics due to key opinion leaders and fringe orthodontic practices? Kevin returned to uncertainty and described, well, why is uncertainty there? And why is it that the social media and the key opinion leaders and fringe orthodontists have a platform which is gaining momentum? Well, it comes down to human psychology, and human beings fundamentally don't like to hear uncertainty. We struggle with statistics, but also we generally tend to base our understanding on a small number of observations. Kevin then described how the general dentists tend not to get taught about orthodontic treatment in their undergraduate programs, and this leaves them in a black hole of orthodontic knowledge, subject to influence then from fringe ideas and key opinion leaders. He described how there are solutions to this, and that is for the specialists to be engaged more with research and critical appraisal, but also dental schools to revisit the curriculum, especially with the amount of orthodontics taking place in general practice. How specialist societies should should be proactive in social media and, and almost countering the unsubstantiated claims that come through. It's always great to hear Kevin O'Brien talk, and this was no exception. He gave a fantastic lecture, and it really summarised, I think, where we are in orthodontics and our interaction with both with research, but also with companies and key opinion leaders. And my understanding from this lecture, in summary, is that no one person is wrong in the equation whether it's the key opinion leader, whether it's a manufacturer, or it's indeed the research-based practitioner. However, there should be a platform to have that conversation. And if we deny that conversation, that is when we can start to take our own profession down this black hole. The guys, that brings us to the end of this orthodontics in conference podcast covering the third day of the AAO. If you guys want to recap or listen to an individual lecture, they're in the description. You can also see some notes on the lectures as well. Now, this conference I thought was a fantastic event in which the key themes were looking at temporary anchorage devices, looking at aligners, the use of 3D printing and technology, both for orthodontics and for surgical planning as well. And the key things I'm taking away from this year's conference is that now with bone-borne Anchorage expansion appliances, we're now starting to push the boundaries of what's orthopedically possible when it comes to orthodontics. When it comes to aligners, I think we're going back to being a bit more realistic with what aligners can do without the use of auxiliaries and how we are still understanding the biomechanics of aligners. Finally, 3D printing is very much the base of the revolution, which is going to be the next big thing in orthodontics. Hope you guys have enjoyed this podcast. Please do subscribe and look forward to the next episode.